A reading from Acts 28, 30-31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And from 2 Timothy 4, 6-22. For I, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in his love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him to you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychus and I have come to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Oniphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Ebulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Jeff Schock and I'm the lead pastor at Crossroads and I'm, I'm really thrilled to be able to, to join you this morning. And um, before we launch into the teaching today, let me just open up in a word of prayer. Lord, you are, you are holy, God. You are... You're wonderful. Father, we love you. We praise you for what you've done through your son, his matchless life, his death on the cross, and through the empty tomb. Father, I do pray that you would give us ears to hear your message. Father, give me the words to speak. Lord, we give you this service. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So once again, just uh, by way of introduction, my name is, is Jeff Schock, and I'm the pastor at Crossroads Bible Church, and we have enjoyed uh, getting to know you guys uh, at Grace South Bay over the last couple of years, and uh, Bob and Stephen and, and the rest of the crew have just been such good friends of ours, and uh, we've really enjoyed, enjoyed our partnership, and so it is a privilege for me to be able to share with you this morning. Our church has been journeying through the book of Acts for about six months. And today we come to the end. 
the very end of the book of Acts. And you just read Acts chapter 28, the last two verses, and then, uh, and then 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 22. And uh, the reason that we, we looked at this text in Timothy is these last seven chapters of Acts have really detailed uh, the, the kind of final chapter in Paul's life from his arrest in Jerusalem, his extradition to Rome. He was, he was shipwrecked. He was put on trial. He had people conspiring to murder him. And, uh, and, and here we have the final, the final installment in the book of Acts. And I'll read it for us uh, once again here. This is just verses 30 and 31. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. And so we're left with something of a cliffhanger. We've seen uh, Luke has chronicled Paul's missionary journeys, and we've seen how Paul has spread the gospel all over the ancient Near East and how he's planted churches. and, And here we are at the culmination of his life, and it's a cliffhanger. We're, we're left hanging. We, we, don't, we don't find out instantly what happens to Paul. It, it ends abruptly. But this is a wise way for, for Luke to end because it says something interesting here in the text. It says for two whole years. Two years was the statutory period in which if you were brought to Rome, if you appealed your case to Caesar, the prosecution had two years to, uh, to build a case, to call witnesses and place and time. You can imagine it took quite a while to get maybe eyewitnesses from Jerusalem to Rome. So there was, there was a two-year statutory period. And the implication here is, is that uh, the, the prosecution couldn't get its case together. He was here for two years. And so uh, the assumption that a lot of commentators and scholars make is that uh, Luke was vindicated. He didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, he, the trial never, never took place. Or if it was, he was acquitted. And he was left to preach the gospel in Rome. In fact, we know from extra biblical sources that, that Paul ultimately was put to death for his faith under Nero several years later. So Paul ends up getting out of trouble and, and going about preaching the gospel, which is his role, which is his job. And he does it with such gusto and such fervor that he ends up drawing the attention and eventually the ire of Nero. And as church tradition holds, Paul's head ends up at the bottom of a Roman basket. Paul never wavered. Paul's energy and his enthusiasm for the gospel never tapered. In fact, you could make the case that he was just ramping up. And so I want to look today at a couple of realities that Paul held deeply that allowed him to end well. And these realities are, are quite frankly, life is a fight. Death has lost its sting. God's will will be done. And the presence of God is real. The first one, life is a fight. Verses six through eight in 2 Timothy say, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is using a word, and the Greek word here is agonies, though. And as Stephen mentioned, I was a wrestler. I, there was a time when, uh, when I was in good shape and I was a wrestler. Now I'm just a coach and I live vicariously through my kids and it's wonderful. The word Paul uses, agonizo, it means, it means a fight. It means a wrestling match. And then he goes on. He, he takes the metaphor a little further. He continues in, in the kind of the realm of athletics. And he says, uh, I've run the race. 
And so he's, he's invoking certain imagery here. He, he's using these athletic metaphors to, to kind of articulate what the Christian life is about in his estimation. And in Paul's estimation, it's a fight. The Christian life is a struggle. And uh, when I came to Christianity, when I came to the Christian faith, I will admit I was an atheist, and uh, life was, was fairly easy by comparison. And, and every once in a while, you know, you get into like a kind of existential crisis, but you know, if, if you don't believe in anything, you just, you assume that when you die, you push up daisies and the lights go out and it's all over, and that none of my decisions had eternal consequences, but then I encountered Jesus one day. And life became a struggle. Life became a struggle because now all of my decisions do have eternal consequences. There, there, is, uh, there is a reckoning that needs to take place. There is ultimately reality that I have to wrestle with as, as a human. And so life is a struggle. Christian life specifically is a struggle. And folks will come to Jesus from one of two places. You'll either come to, to Jesus like I did from a place of irreligion. I grew up in a, in a marginally Roman Catholic household just outside of New York City, uh, and we were, we were Catholic on Christmas and Easter. And uh, when I was 13, I decided for, for a lot of reasons that I didn't believe in God, and that this, the Bible was an agrarian fairy tale, and it was just a crutch for weak-minded people who were afraid to die. And so when I, when I came to the faith, I, all of a sudden I encountered Jesus and I realized that my decisions really do matter and there really is good in the universe. There really is an objective moral standard in the universe and all of a sudden life became hard. There's a struggle. Now you can come to Jesus also from not a place of irreligion but a place of religion and that is equally challenging. Consider uh, the Christian edicts. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God. Forgive your brother seven times 70. When you compare these to the edicts and other faith traditions, they are decidedly impossible to attain. In other traditions, there's, frankly, and, and this is even within Christian legalism, there's, there's a list. There's boxes that you check, and if you check enough boxes, you have, you have balanced the scales of justice on your own. But when you come to Jesus, and he says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, that's not something you can ever say, done. That's a, that's a, a quest, that's a journey that goes on for a lifetime. And so the Christian, the Christian life is, is a fight. And he invokes these athletic metaphors for a reason. When I was, uh, when I, when I was a wrestler in high school, and those of you who have wrestled, you know you have to make weight. And uh, I, was, I was cutting weight, as you do, and my mom, who is a, a little Italian lady from Brooklyn, did not grasp the concept of missing meals. That was very foreign <laughs> to her. And so whenever I had to make weight, she would always, uh, she would make like steak and lobster or something like that so that I would be tempted. But the, the, the thing that athletes do, whether if you're a wrestler or if you're a runner, is if somebody offers you a piece of cake, you, you don't have it. You say no to that. If somebody's, if they're going, if your friends are going out late, you may, you may say no to that because you're giving up something good in order to get something better. In Paul's estimation, the Christian life is a deliberate struggle. 
And there are one of two positions that you could actually be operating one is. One is uh, you're, you're conforming yourself to the image of Jesus in every situation you encounter, every, every place where you find yourself, you're asking the question, how can I serve? How can I give? How can I love others? Or there is the other default state of the human heart, which is how can I serve myself? How can I seek my own self-interest? And so all of us, every human who has ever lived is on one of two paths. Either they're becoming more like Jesus or they're becoming something far, far worse. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no one left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. All of us are on a journey. And I've often marveled that as people get older, it's usually pretty evident which path they're on. I've known people who, uh, who in their older years have become somewhat grumpy and crotchety. But then I've met some others And it's apparent a lifetime of walking with Jesus has altered the trajectory of their heart and their life in such a way that they become more and more like him and they're just filled with greater amounts of joy. The Christian life is a fight. It's a struggle. But the reward is worth it. And this is what is so evident and cognizant to Paul. This is why he has the ability to stare death in the face and end remarkably well. Next, death has lost its sting. In verse six, it says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. The Greek word for poured out is spendomai and it literally means spent. He's being poured out and the image Paul is invoking is in the temple when you had an animal sacrifice, you would do a drink offering and you would pour the drink on top of the sacrifice. And so Paul's saying, I'm being spent. And then he goes on, he says, the time for my departure is near. And the word there is the same word that you would use for for launching a boat. And in Paul's estimation, death isn't the end. It's just the beginning. When when the word depart, he's saying we're we're launching a boat. You're you're taking off on a journey. I remember when I was, uh, you know, Stephen mentioned that I was a a Marine when I was 19. I remember we had a going away party and the next day I got my mom's Toyota and uh, I, I took off, I left the block, and it was at the same point um, sad. I was gonna miss my friends and miss my family, and it was terrifying because who knows what's, a, what's going to await, but it was also an incredible adventure. And this is the language that Paul is using. And this is why he can say, like in First Thessalonians 4.13, he writes, brothers and sisters, we do, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. Paul's, Paul's not saying we don't grieve as Christians. Rather, we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. We understand because of Jesus, because of his, his matchless life, his death on the cross, because of the empty tomb, that he made a way for us to be with God forever and that death is not the end. It's just a doorway through which we all must pass. When Jesus encounters death, In John 11, his friend Lazarus dies. 
and Jesus journeys to the town where he's buried. And as he approaches the tomb, the text tells us he cries out. It's a strong word. Jesus' theology of death is not one of stoic resignation and acceptance. He knows that death is not supposed to be a part of the plan. And, and, and he calls Lazarus out of that tomb, but Jesus' response is one of anguish. We grieve, but not like the rest of the world who has no hope. Jesus, there's, there's a, uh, a popular sentiment, and this is what I thought before I became a Christian. I was pretty stoic about the whole thing that, you know, when you die, the lights go out, you push up daisies. In The Lion King, there's a, a kind of similar thought. Mufasa is explaining the circle of life to Simba, and he says, oh, you see those gazelles, when they die, they, they turn into grass, and then something else eats the grass. That's incredibly stoic. That's not Jesus' perspective on death. Jesus sounds a lot more like Dylan Thomas. Do not go quietly into the night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And this is why theologians like George Herbert have written, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him a gardener. And this is why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Sometimes when I'm sitting with people who are at the end of their life, we'll talk about heaven, about the resurrection, and what that will be like. And those were some of my most memorable conversations. I want to challenge you this morning. Can you imagine for a second what it will be like at the resurrection, at the, at the resurrection and, and the, uh, the restoration of all things? Can you imagine? I was listening to Timothy Keller talk about this recently, and he said, it's, it's your resurrected body is going to be so incredible that your present body is like comparing a tomato to your future self. Can you imagine? Instead of five senses, a hundred or a thousand. And, and all, of the, all of the little picadillos and all of the little, uh, the broken places are gone. And your relationship with God is, is, is beautiful and wonderful and everybody you've lost has been restored. The joy that you feel at the restoration of all things will be exactly proportional to the pain you felt this side of heaven. I think of the way C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, in the, and this is a spoiler, in the very last paragraph of the last battle, the Pevensey kids are transported back to Narnia. And this time, Narnia is far bigger and far more majestic than anything they had seen previously. And they hear a voice calling them, saying further up and further in. And so they begin to run and follow this voice, and they're running impossibly fast, even up waterfalls, and, and then they get there to the top of this mountain and they encounter the lion, Aslan, and it says the lion uh, changed before their eyes. He becomes Jesus. And then it says, it turned out that the, the cover page had only been the first chapter in the greatest story that had ever been told and that, and that every page in this next adventure was better than the last. Paul saw death as just a doorway through which we almost passed. He saw it as the beginning of a great adventure. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who at the onset of World War II traveled back to Nazi Germany to oppose Hitler. 
and he ended up going to the gallows. He was arrested for insurrection and he was hung. And before he was hung, he wrote to a friend, he said, death is the supreme festival on the way to freedom. Finally, Paul understood that God's will will be done. In verse 18, it says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You could read the sentence and, and perhaps uh, think that it looks like the Lord is always gonna rescue me, but that's not what Paul is saying. You've gotta really read the rest of the sentence where he says he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. See, Paul knows, he knows that the Lord is going to rescue him and it's either gonna be from suffering or it's either gonna be through suffering, but ultimately, God is going to rescue him. And this is why he's so calm. Look what it says in verse 16. It says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Paul has been abandoned by everybody close to him. Yet he's got this tremendous poise and this tremendous calm and he's, he's not holding on to, all, you know, to, to, to anger or resentment over it. He's, he's free of it. And the reason is he has the ultimate confidence that God's will is going to be done, that he is going to be brought into God's heavenly kingdom with him. And that's why Paul, and he, he writes about this later in Romans 8.28, earlier in Romans 8.28, he says, God will work together for the good, all things, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What does that mean? That means even the worst things in your life, even the most tragic corners of your life, God is going to work that together for the good. And when you see the tapestry that God has woven in your life and the life of everybody who's ever called on his name, you're gonna be blown away. And I thought about the best way to illustrate this, and I don't even know if they do this anymore, but when I was a kid, you could go to a sporting event and they would, they would, put, uh, they would put a little printed thing on the bottom of your cushion and at halftime, they'd get everybody to lift the cushion up in the air. And if you looked at the bottom of your cushion, it would just be like a line or two. But it wasn't until everybody lifted it up and, and you looked at it and it was, it was like, you know, uh, the Olympic symbol or something like that. But it was only at the, at the culmination when, it, when everything had been lifted up and you could see it and you're like, wow, look at that. Do you know one day you will stand and look at the events of your life and even the most tragic, even the most hurtful events of your life or things that God used to bring you into glory. When I uh, first went into ministry, I, took a, I was finishing my bachelor's degree and I took a job as a, as a youth pastor over in Sunnyvale. And I was there for about six months and a um, young man came into that ministry. He, uh, it was an interesting story. He was in, in the hospital awaiting a uh, heart transplant because his, he had a congenital defect and his heart had only been pumping maybe... 2% of the blood he needed or something tragic like that. He was, on, uh, he was on life support and we couldn't visit him because of his condition. Um, so we wrote him a letter and we started praying for this young man. He was only about 16. Miraculously, he, his condition improves enough so that he can be released from the hospital. And lo and behold, he starts coming out to our, our youth group. I remember we took the kids to see Elf with Will Farrell, a good, good wholesome movie. And uh, he joined us and he was, he was sick and he was pale, um, but we just loved him as best we could. 
And I remember the day he decided to give his life to Jesus and we baptized him in the hot tub at my apartment in Cupertino. Uh, his name was Timmy and he'd had a rough life. His, his dad was out of his life and uh, I remember when I went to pick him up one day, I met his mom and she had, she had cancer and she was missing an arm that had been amputated and um, <laughs> the events of Timmy's life were, were terribly tragic. And, uh, and about six months after he gave his life to the Lord, he, he died. And I remember doing his funeral. I, I liked him. He, he was a wrestler and he, he played hockey before he got too sick and he liked shooting. And uh, when I did his eulogy, I quoted Led Zeppelin like you do. And uh, I remember looking at his mom and said, right now, Timmy is running and he's laughing and he knows the immeasurable joy that can only come from the embrace of God. All of the events in Timmy's life, as tragic and as painful as they were, led him to a point where he encountered Jesus. And now he's with him forever and ever and ever. Paul knows that God's will is going to be done. And consider for a second that every bad, every evil thing, God is going to work out for good. Reflect that back onto your own life. Paul knew it, and he knew it down to his bones, and this is why he's able to look death in the face. This is why he's able to be so bold. He's the most effective missionary that ever lived. He is deeply cognizant that God's will will be done. Then finally, the presence of God is real. Verse 17, he writes, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. That word for the Lord stood by my side, that, that also is used to, to signify someone binding up your wounds. Paul has an experience of the presence of God that, that transcends simply having knowledge about God. For Paul, the presence of God is real. Paul's, um, Paul's estimation is that God is standing right next to him and that he's, he's binding his wounds, he's, he's serving him and he's being... Um, the most dear friend you can imagine. Proverbs 18 says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And for Paul, it's Jesus. The thing that Paul needed at the end of his life to end well was intimacy. Another word for that is friendship with God. And so my question for you, Grace, is do you have a sense of his presence like that? Do you... Is your faith more than simply intellectual assent? Learning scripture, memorizing scripture, wonderful things, understanding doctrine, awesome. Do you have a sense of the presence of God in your life that is as tangible and as palpable as a friend that is better than a brother? The Lord Jesus who stands next to you through thick and thin, who will bind your wounds, do you have that type of a sense? Here's how you get it. A couple of things. You need to meditate on the gospel. You need to reflect on the gospel. John Stott, when he was writing his commentary on this passage, he notes that, uh, and, and this is the final passage in Acts, that this is, in a sense, Paul's cavalry. Uh, everybody has deserted him, just like Jesus. And only the difference is that where everybody deserted Paul, the Lord is at his side. When everybody deserted Jesus, God deserted him too so that he could be faithful to you and I. 
you've got to wrestle with this, that though we deserved to be abandoned by God, Jesus took that abandonment. He took every last lash that I deserve. Martin Luther says we carry his very nails in our pockets. He hung on that cross for me. And if I were the only person, if you were the only person in all of history that would have called on his name, he still would have done it just for you. He gave himself so that you could go free. And the more you meditate on that, the more, the more you're gonna feel his presence in your life. I saw yesterday, it was an artist's rendition of what Jesus may have looked like. And this was better than most. And he looked like a, like a slight Middle Eastern man. And I, I, was, I was looking at the face and I thought, you know, is, is that really what he looks like? Who, who knows? But do you know him? Have you read his words? They are not the words of an average 33-year-old. When you open the pages of the gospel and you see who Jesus is and you see the strength and the tenderness and the wisdom, he's not just a man. He's the son of God and he came to earth to give his life for you and for anybody who would call on his name. And the more you weave that into your heart, the more you're gonna have a sense of his presence, the more you will be able to be faithful, to struggle, the greater the sense that death has lost its sting, and the fuller your knowledge that God's will will be done in your life. This is God's word. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word, God. Thank you for Paul and his life and the way you, the way you chose him, the way you used him. Father, I do pray that you would help us to realize as Paul did, the gravity of the claims and the, and the significance of the promises, Father. Help us to be your children, light in the darkness. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.